0: We're given an opportunity to, to look at how we structure theater and to ask ourselves questions. And my hope is that there will be flexibility and that will be an ongoing conversation. There's not just one way that we can change everything and that will work for everyone, but it's asking everybody, what is your access needs? That makes me special and unique and I have a little bit different flavor, of course, of calling a show than the other stage managers, as we all do. We all have our own styles. Consistency is crucial. You have to keep searching for the projects, stories, and talent that bring disability to your stages.
1: Hello, Theatre Art Life podcast listeners. Today we're sharing with you the audio from our one-on-one interview series. We hope that you enjoy listening. Some of our discussion has references to pictures shown in our webinar, so if you want to see these pictures, you can always head over to the Theatre Art Life youtube channel and watch the replay enjoy peter royston he him his is an equity stage manager based in new york and originally from the bay area his credits include blue man group the public theater the lark oregon shakespeare festival san jose repertory theater theater works among many others since 2017 peter has become a vocal advocate and ally to the disabled community specifically through his lived experiences as a white gay man with cerebral palsy peter welcome to theater art life to be here. thank you so much for joining with us today, and uh, I'd like to start with from a very simple perspective in terms of just dis- defining disability. and for you, what's your definition and what's the best way for people to talk about it, what terminology? And what approach should everyone have when they're bringing up the topic of people with disabilities?
0: Well, first, I just want to give a a description of myself for some of the folks. I am a white male with glasses and I have short brown hair. And today I'm wearing a blue paisley shirt. I'm sitting on a red couch, which you may see, and I'm in front of a gray wall. There's a little blue picture on the wall as well. And uh, my preferred pronouns are he, him. To start off with, there are uh, two main definitions, I think, with ableism and disability. And uh, I think it would be good just to pull up the slides for this. Yeah, Yeah, So our first slide is uh, on a blue background and there's a few blue squares um, in the top right corner. And the definition is written in white. Uh, This is a definition for ableism. It is a system that places value on people's bodies and minds based on societal constructed ideas for normalcy, intelligence, excellence, and productivity. These constructed ideas are deeply rooted in anti-blackness, eugenics, colonialism, and capitalism. This form of systemic oppression leads to people and society determining who is valuable and worthy based on a person's appearance and or ability to satisfactorily reproduce, excel, and behave. You do not have to be disabled to experience ableism. During, um, quarantine, uh, this past summer, I was part of, uh, the Crip Camp virtual experience, which was taken out in response to the Crip Camp documentary that was produced on Netflix. And it was a group of disabled leaders talking to the disabled community. And I found this, this definition very important. Disability is our next slide. It's a white backdrop. Uh, disability is in pink and there's some pink squares in the right corner and a blue line at the bottom. A disability is a condition which makes it more difficult for a person to do certain activities or interact with the world around them. These conditions or impairments may be cognitive, developmental, intellectual, mental, physical, sensory, or a combination of multiple factors. Impairments causing disability may be present from birth or occur during a person's lifetime. The United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities defines disability as long-term physical, mental, intellectual, or sensory impairments, which may, in interaction with various barriers, may hinder a person's full and effective participation in society on an equal basis with others. I do think what's important in the disability definition, something to be aware of, is that it is the largest minority and about 25% of the population Identifies as disabled, and how that relates to theater is about five percent of roles uh, in film are disabled characters, and about one percent of those are given to disabled actors.
1: Wow! And do you have the same? Is there similar statistics in live theater, or, or that's not really quantified?
0: I don't want to speak clearly, but I think that was overall in the performing. performing oh, okay, parts. so film and theater. I mean, uh, based off of the surveys, the, the stage management survey and our diversity report from Actors' Equity, which is the American, not the full global, about 5% of the stage managers identify as disabled. Mm. And there is a margin of error because there are some people that uh, choose not to answer that question, which for till about 2017, 2017 I was one of those people.
2: Mm.
1: And how do you feel personally about those statistics, especially given the fact that, you know, some of the roles of people, say, playing disabled people aren't actually being played by disabled people. How do you feel about that?
0: I think that it's sad because I think that there's an untapped resource in talent and stories and moving the world and our community and our industry into a more equitable space. There are answers and how to make theatre and the world more accessible. And that conversation needs to be had with the disabled community. There's been a social upheaval and a social reckoning in this country. And I think it's extended to some echoes around the world and that that those conversations about what is equitable and fair and safe, that conversation needs to include um, accessibility or you're not addressing the full uh, anti-oppression practices.
1: And I really think this is what I really want to dig in today. How can the individuals and also companies talk about accessibility, inclusion, and the arts? Mm -hmm. But before we before we get into those, you know, what can we do and how do people work on that? Because I I think it's a huge thing to unpack. Actually, for four hours. Tell us a little bit about your experience, if you're willing to share it, you know, in how yeah. um, your disability has influenced your career. Again, specifically not in terms of what you think you're capable of, whatever, but external influences and the perception of disability in your world.
0: Something that I need to acknowledge is that I do hold privilege. I have been somebody that has been able to pass as an able-bodied person in a lot of circumstances. I have limited mobility in my right side and that affects me differently based off of um, when I'm tired or when I'm overwhelmed or when I'm stressed. I've definitely experienced two instances that I can, uh, for examples, one was sort of at the beginning of my career and I was uh, working at a new regional theater and uh, we were doing our first rehearsal and we stepped through the transition and I was able to do it, but um, the director didn't like uh, the way I did it. So at the end of the rehearsal, the production stage manager said, "I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to do this." Oh, that's the way theater is. And at that time, I took that in. It's like people make their choices, but in terms of who's capable to do that job, I was able to do the transition. And the only reason why was that the first time I did it, it didn't look smooth. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a few things to unpack just in that circumstance: is that one, like it could take anybody more than one time to make something work well and look look smoothly and maybe it looks a little bit different the first time? And then also, how do you judge what that picture is supposed to look like? And do you want to include a diverse group of uh, mobilities as well as people on stage? I think also related to that experience was the main actor was pegged as a a diva by so, my, the other assistant and the crew. And they spent a lot of time complaining about how difficult she was. And I usually take that as an, as a call to find out how to work with somebody. And, and we worked with her. And one of the things that she asked for was to have a blanket thrown over her at the end of, of the show. And she was on stage, um, had her kids were dying. She'd been on stage. She has this momentous epic performance and she wants a blanket thrown over her. Stage. <laughs> And so I did that every night. And at the end of the run, uh, she gave me a hug and said, thank you so much for your love. And I know that that same courtesy was not uh, really to my colleague. And I think that it's interesting, just like in my, the reason why I'm sort of saying this is that I'm curious where I'd like to ask everyone the question of what you consider what is the best, who is most able to do a job. And what do you really need from a stage manager, and what does that vary? And do you need all types of abilities?
1: Before you get onto that second sense, that second example, I think this year you're saying that um, that you feel that that shift has been made in terms of people want to have a bit more representation in diversity and a bit more of a real mirror of real life mm-hmm. um, you, you think that 2020 has been or 20, well now we're in 2021 but 2020 was um a time for us to stop breathe and take a look at that
0: yeah i think as we're given an opportunity to to look at how we structure theater and to ask ourselves questions and my hope is that there will be flexibility and that will be an ongoing conversation there's not just one way that we can change everything and that it will work for everyone but it's asking everybody what is your access needs and how can we best serve you and do you want those? Because if you do want a diverse group of people and if you do want everyone to excel and to bring all their ideas and to work in a collaborative environment, you need to allow for that space Mm -hmm. and different people need different things.
1: And different people have different things to offer as well, right? So.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. so tell us about that second example in that you've had in your
0: career more recently i went to an interview and i was waiting sitting at the bench and the person came up interviewer came up to me to shake my hand and i shook her hand and she immediately clocked me (laughs) and i just you know she gave me a look and we went on with our interview and it was a fine interview and then uh, she asked for my references and uh, I got a call from one of my references uh, that said that, that the interviewer had asked if I, what was wrong with me? Did I have a debilitating disease? How was this going to affect my work? So, from my perspective, if somebody really wanted to know or was concerned, you would ask me at the interview. Since that time, I have tried to come out and just be open that I have cerebral palsy. What my needs are, what my access needs are, and to open up that conversation. But still, at that time, and even now, it's, I'm very curious about how people t- talk about it and what kind of uh, misconceptions and stigmas people have about disability.
1: Do you think that that comes from a sense of, um, oh, it's hard to really say, I guess, but you know, a lot of people who are quite ignorant about disabilities and how they work and what people are capable of and a bit awkward about having that conversation. And and you said that you now bring that up in your interviews, potentially maybe to cut that off at the pass. How would somebody who's interviewing you, how would you want to be approached?
0: Well, I think having an open-ended question, so I think lead, also leading by example. So one thing I also did not do was start off and say what my access needs are, which is something that I hope gets included in the conversation of introductions. When we add our preferred pronouns and a visual description and my access needs are that I have limited mobility in my right side, uh, which means that for uh, in stage management that I will need to work out if I do cue lights um, uh, or how that the booth is set up or backstage choreography. But I can figure that out. And I have aphasia. So when I am tired or overwhelmed, I may stutter or slur. And also that would include uh, and that extends to written work. So if I'm going to send out a mass email to an entire uh, chorus and to the entire company at 12 o'clock at night, somebody should probably check that or they need to be aware that if there's a dumb error, that that's why. It's not because Peter or somebody with aphasia is not detail oriented, doesn't know what the information was, didn't check themselves. It is because of this condition.
1: Well, I think I could join uh, you in having sent dumb emails at midnight as well. So <laughs> I don't think that's. Uh-
0: <laughs> and, and since I've talked about that in, in interviews, you know, pretty much every stage manager says that. And it's nice to like relieve that stress. But also, as somebody who has been surrounded all their life by internalized ableism and, you know, basically growing up trying to be normal instead of actually just being the best, <laughs> just being Peter, that affects me so but it's nice to just like open that up and of course we all laugh and we work it all out and since I've been more open about my disability I feel much more at home in my in my skin and I see how it's such a it's exciting to find out to kind of see how you can creatively put together do your work and why you're different like I get I get to do the show a little bit differently how I uh, ended up learning blue man group is different than how most people do I have to do a few different things than most people do and Mm. That makes me special and unique, and I have a little bit different flavor, of course, of calling a show than the other stage managers. As we all do, we all have our own styles So,
1: yeah, absolutely. Your your point is also too. You know, so something that a mistake for me I can maybe brush off as a, as, a, as a bad mistake at midnight. But it might for you 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 become self conscious about that because then it might reflect on mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. what people may judge. Am I right? What people may judge about Mm -hmm. you because that mistake was made. And so how did you build or how do you, would you recommend people build confidence in, in talking about their disability or their accessibility needs?
0: I think uh, knowing yourself and knowing what you need and knowing that it's okay to actually state what you need. It's actually a sign of strength to say what you do need and what, what you are capable of. It's not a weakness. Mm. I feel like I've gained strength by Getting more and more used to talking about what I need and how it will affect the uh, the work and of course each show is different so and some things may never come up like sometimes there's no error there's no problem or there's nothing really for me i I can figure out my physical space well or what I need to do easily, but also. If there's a question, like what was le- what I felt like was a trigger, even in the interview, is someone doesn't know exactly what's going on too. That that also leaves them open to wonder and to be concerned. So mm. if I'm open, then that relieves the stress. Mm. That's what this is. So if I'm doing this. It's nothing. Like I I'm capable of stage managing a show. I've called the show. I've worked with many different kinds of companies. I know I can do my work. Why are you concerned though? This is. This is why, and it doesn't affect my work, but this is how it will show up in certain mm-hmm. instances.
1: Yeah. Letting them know what they're going to see and experience from your perspective. Yeah. So the in terms of, oh, it's a big topic because I think about accessibility and inclusion in the arts and every, you know, you said like ableism and disabilities, it's a very broad spectrum, right? So your needs is different from somebody who may, you know, be on the spectrum or um, a different disability, et cetera, et cetera. So, where do we start in being more inclusive?
0: We may want to share this later, but there's a great article that Ryan uh, Jay Hatted shared, which is a disability scorecard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also before that, there's just a few basic questions, which I think I have a, a slide for, which I think are questions you can ask yourself or your company. So this is something that Ryan J. it, who's a writer and actor, wrote and published in the American Theater Magazine as well as the Long Wharf Theater, and I think it's a a great place to start and asking your theater questions Were to be aware of. This slide is blue and there's a pink backdrop for the words. Uh, Ryan J. Haddad is a playwright and actor with cerebral palsy who wrote the disability scorecard. It was published on AmericanTheater.org we are tired of being tertiary here is a partial list of ways to center disabled artists and audiences going forward and this slide is a pink backdrop with uh, a yellow uh, highlight for disability scorecard at the top and the list of requests for questions is in white writing so program work by disabled playwrights program work predominantly featuring disabled characters even if the character is not explicitly explicitly identified as disabled, but uh, the action of the play or uh, context of the story suggests that they might be, please uh, stop and ask yourself, wait, is this actually a disabled character? Sometimes the answer is yes. Make subsequent creative decisions accordingly. Three, cast disabled uh, actors uh, to play disabled characters. I mean, of course, but I had to uh, say it. Uh, Hollywood is still guilty, and sometimes theater is too. I don't have the sense of humor that's in some of these, which is Brian. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, have disabled actors and play characters not written to be disabled. If you programmed a play that featured disability five seasons ago or four or three or two seasons ago, that is not enough. It's irresponsible to virtually ignore an entire community for years at a time, and you can't use one positive example from the past to justify the absence of inclusion in the present or future. Consistency is crucial. You have to keep searching for the projects, stories, and talent that bring disability to your stages. A piece of theater can still represent disability without being about disability. Hire disabled directors and choreographers. Hire disabled designers and technicians. This one is a yellow backdrop and the highlight is in green for disabled scorecard. If your scenic designer uh, begins prior to your casting process, ask if the accessibility of your design concept excludes performers with certain mobility disabilities. From being in your play, musical, if the concept is exclusionary, consider a more universal design approach. Hire disabled stage managers. Disabled people are great at problem solving because we have constantly adapted to a role that is, built, that is not built for us. Hire disabled front of house, box office, and full-time administrative staff. If you require a disabled consultant, hire one. It is not every disabled person's job to act as a disabled consultant, particularly if they are not being compensated for that role. Do better than the minimum when it comes to audience uh, accessibility. Just for the front of house, which I think was touched on in a previous webinar too, is accessibility is about so much more than mobility. Audience uh, accessibility includes, but is not limited to audio description and large print playbills, for blind and low vision patrons, captioning, preferably open caption and sign language interpretation for the deaf and hard of hearing patrons. These do not cancel each other out. They are different uh, services and different people need different things. So please plan to offer both along with assistive listening devices, relaxed performances uh, for autistic and neurodiverse patrons.
1: That's a lot.
0: And um, that's available on the American Theatre Magazine. If you want to see his Brian's full article, and I think that that, that list pretty much, uh, or at least touches on most of the main, or all of the main points uh, related to theater. I think that the a key to that uh, to all that is that. There's a minimum work that can be done. And then there's like keeping on asking yourself to get better. And I think it's an internal questions that you need to ask. Like, how do you work and how do you set up a your production? If you're a gatekeeper or a manager and are you doing the minimum or are you actually reaching out? And what do you actually want? Because if you really want an equitable space that works for everyone, you need to address Ableism, which is rampant and sometimes not totally obvious. It's a hidden or it's an overlooked minority. It's an overlooked issue in a lot of circumstances.
1: Oh, that's great. So, if we're talking about that from a producer's point of view or a company manager, that you know, they might have ways and means to execute on that task list. What about those who are, say, in the cast or Backstage technician or a lighting person who are not there, who cannot influence that necessarily, but how could they become an ally to that community while being in the art scene?
0: Addressing the issues and asking your yourself it's kind of like a question, I mean, these questions, um, and just like, have you announced like your needs and goals and priorities? Have you lived by an example? I think it's, um, are your needs in alignment with the rest of your team? Have you? looked at your production calendar and seeing that it works for everyone. Can you shift that calendar if it needs to? Have you allowed for proper planning of a piece? And um, are you aware of everyone else's access needs? I think also that the main issues to just be aware of is time. Like how much time does it take to set up a space and the planning, uh, planning, um, and direct communication. And I think a lot of those ideas, it's, it seems like there's a conception that if you have to accommodate something for a disabled person, that it will take more time, that it will cost more. And that is also another stigma. So I think if you're trying, as an individual, trying to open up and be an ally to the community, that you address those, those needs and be aware of the facts.
1: And learn, I guess, you know, learn about and speak to people like yourself and other people that have um, and live and, and, and exist in that world so that you understand what uh, their needs are, right? So you can support them if you're in, if you're working with Peter, yeah. we can come and have that conversation with you, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, and there's so much varied experiences. So, I mean, I know several people who have a palsy and how it presents itself and how it affects their lives is different. And also what they do is different. So. Like Ryan J. Hatted uh, is one person, and and Greg Magzala is another person who's uh, definitely a creative person. How that physically looks and how that uh, affects us on an intellectual perspective is also different. Mm-hmm. And so that each person's experience is different, which is why I think it's very helpful and important to give access to needs and to open up that discussion. So I think one really easy way to be an ally is to actually state your access needs and also ask someone else do you have any access needs or is there any way else we can support you. Mm
2: -hmm. I think
0: having an open honest conversation is really helpful and I think uh, it is also an untapped exciting project is to to really build up and build up our community and our theater industry at this point to work towards being fully accessible to all and that we are not actually there yet addressing other systems of oppression that have come up in this last year, unless we're addressing this. it's it's not. We're still not there yet. If we if we leave this out, we've missed the ball this year. Mm.
1: Katie Anna McConnell says, uh, we also need to ban non-readmission policies in theatres. It's such a huge barrier for some disabilities. So do you mean, Katie, if you people leave the theatre that they can't come back in? I guess that's the thing. I think from country to country and place to place, that can be... Uh, something that is a rule, and that is if people do need to take a bit of time out. You know, when we spoke about um, successful theatre last week and we talked about neurodiverse, Mm -hmm. uh, audience members sometimes need to take Mm -hmm. a break from the stimulation. So ideally, in in an ideal world, every theatre show is accessible for Mm -hmm. neurodiverse and and that, but there is a certain, would you say, Mm -hmm. uh, expectation on theatre behaviour and... Protocol. It's not. A, it's not a written yeah. protocol, but there is a lot of people that comment
0: on. You know, a reality. Yeah, well, well. yeah, I mean, because I mean, some shows like even I know, um even just in a different uh, and also another perspective too is that like how people watch theater too is different. Uh, is different, and some of those conversations have been had. Even with "Ain't Too Proud to Beg," the director and the creative person for the show said. To allow anybody to, exp- uh, to express themselves however they wanted to and experience a theater. So it wasn't that you had to be quiet and never and and don't clap and laugh and engage with the show. You can actually that there are these strict systems in place of how we have to attend theater, how we have to go to theater, and how we go through tech, how we perform, and that perhaps there are alternate ways to do that. And perhaps we can do that in different, uh, different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that the re non re thing is something that should be addressed, That doing one autism friendly performance and then one closed caption performance is technically not enough that um, I, and I know that there's different ways that people have to look at how they move towards having that more accessible to more, oper- to more of the com- uh, disability community, but I've seen one uh, theater that specific performances, but then also if you can't make it, they have the services to give you um, closed captions on a device where they can arrange it for you to come on any night that they don't want to exclude you if you can't make that specific night. And I think that is all that is also important mm-hmm.
1: it's interesting for me because you know i'm speaking to you from the other side of the world and and also uh, audiences around the world have different flavors and expectations and behaviors and so Mm -hmm. I have lived in a world that has that lacks you know what you're talking about Katie that expectation that the people can't come back in although I have worked on shows where that was back in Australia where that was certainly the protocol You, you know I worked on a show in Asia where you know we'd announced no cell phones at the top of the show and the minute that the show started there's a million cell phones coming out to video the opening of the show and there's nothing you could do about it so I, I feel like I'm quite relaxed in that and 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 I enjoy the audience being as participatory in process but I also understand that the reverence that people have in the theatre and and that so there's there's got to be a happy medium I guess in terms of allowing that it's certainly something that I've taken my young children and my my son has, is a very specific kind of uh child as well and i've always been a little bit anxious to take him to theater and have him behave appropriately and uh and it's not it's it's, it's a difficult thing as a parent to be self-conscious about that you know um and you want to be welcomed into that and i think you know so in, in a certain sense although i can't identify with your stories peter it's it's i have experienced that in some way shape or form and um it's really important that we, we try to do as much as possible for people that are who have disabilities and are having issues that in terms of their own workplace uh, you know success mm-hmm. is there is there a support network or are there resources that people can get specifically for the arts that people can get or make strides in with with uh, their work because there's those resources available. I mean, I, maybe I'll just talk about the States because you probably don't know about anywhere else, but um, for you, have you had support?
0: Well, I mean, there's, I've, I've reached out to people and I I mean, there's definitely, um, I have support from several performers and I feel like I have connections through that. And definitely going through the Crip Camp, uh, group. I've gained some other uh, connections, and I think that's where I found, especially talking about disability, more resources or um, support. Definitely, other people who of other people who are colleagues of mine and friends of mine who uh, fit in other inter- intersections of um, oppression. I also feel a lot of support from them, and that we get a lot of strength. One thing that I'm still missing is. Having a larger network of disabled stage managers specifically, and um, as of now, I have I know three people. So I hope that that opens up as more people feel more comfortable to talk about their uh, disability and their experiences, because I know they are they are out there.
1: You know, what would be your hopes for the industry moving forward post twenty twenty, and you know, in the next five years with regards
0: to disability and accessibility? I hope that people address like the items listed in the dis- disability scorecard and um, that there's representation in all aspects of our industry and that like includes the critics, that includes the directors, like, that includes all aspects of it. And I hope that able bodied colleagues hold themselves accountable. I think that doing one play by one disabled person <laughs> is not enough. And I do hope that. Just as a reminder, like if you aren't addressing ableism, then you aren't addressing um, anti racism Mm. fully.
1: Dana has a good uh, question. How would you recommend for stage managers assisting collecting information on what everyone's access needs are and then keeping that private? And with that in mind, would it be a good idea to ask what your access needs are on the audition sheet? What would you think
0: to do with that? Well, yeah. And that's something I think we didn't talk about. Like I have a little bit of a difficulty with disability being a private matter because I think that is part of the problem. And that, and that of course becomes this gray area because I think there is also a difference between disability and disease or disability and other health matters. So Mm. like, and it's personal for everyone. And if somebody doesn't want to disclose it, they don't have to, I think, well, I would say what my envision, what I envision is that when we do introductions at the beginning of the day or the first rehearsal and you do your meet and greet and you say, hi, my name is Peter. My pronouns are he, him, his. I am a white male with glasses and brown hair and a blue shirt. I am currently on the land of the Lenape. And also my access needs are or something to be aware of is that I have cerebral palsy, which affects my right side. I have aphasia, so if my speech gets slurred or if you get an email from me that has a few errors in it, that's what that is. And you can leave it at that and say um, some other things may come up, but we'll address those as we move forward. Please share any excess needs that you feel comfortable expressing. And if you do not feel comfortable expressing them, you can put it in your intake sheet or you can come talk to me privately. And I think that is about setting up a safe space to also allow people to come talk to you. About it. But if people don't know that you are even aware of it or that you care, no one may ask. And some people may not even be aware of it. And some people also may have different access needs as the process goes on and might not even be aware of it. And I don't think it's necessarily even just about disabled. You don't have to be disabled to have access needs.
1: Mm, You're right. MM also asked, instead of retroactivity, include accessibility in the creation of the production, create internships for disabled students to get more disabled people involved in the industry, which is a good point because maybe people don't uh, go into the industry from the outset because they feel that it's not for them or, or it's not inclusive enough. Do you think it should start early, earlier than it does, Peter?
0: Promote like- America's perspective of I've been very I I always look to other countries or something like that to to have theater training in the art that's just like mandatory for everyone at a preliminary stage and I think when you're exposed to the arts into theater right away then you either you figure out if you want to be a part of it and you you know if you want to have a voice in it I think I can't speak for what it's like in other places but I think that opening up and like having that open discussion of do you want to try this and finding a way to do that would be really helpful and have a more openness to see what people are capable of and telling instead of telling people no. And I think that's more of a cultural shift that needs that could shift and open up. But none of these things are just going to be like a one answer and we solve it and we set up a space and it's going to be completely it's going to solve all the problems and issues. I think as long as we're human beings, this is going to be issue that needs to be worked on. But right now, it's not being worked on, so I think that's why it's it's actually creative. It's the ongoing creative project to be anti to be anti racist, to be anti oppressive, to be anti, uh, like to to battle um, anti ableism practices, and to have a more equitable space that uplifts everybody and to have new voices.
1: Mm. I totally agree, and and you know, like you said, it's a good point you make about the cultural. You know, from culture to culture, there's certain levels of people addressing these issues. And I, I won't name countries or places that I've worked with, but there are people, there's places that are very, very far from even having a conversation like this. So it does take people to participate, advocate, and push for those changes. You know, I mean, even for example, uh, just on a base if you've ever been to Hong Kong, I don't know how anyone with a wheelchair gets around Hong Kong. Like, I have zero clue because there's just no access for the stairs everywhere. You have to walk every. There's. I don't even know how anybody would do that. And yet, I am sure there are lots of disabled people in Hong Kong. Yet, that's just not a city that has been designed, and uh, the infrastructure is not there to let people even get around the city. And we're not even talking about the arts, right? so that that layers in, I think that's why I'm really enjoying these conversations um and this series on accessibility because you know I'm learning a lot. If you don't know about it and if you're not, if you're not learning about it, then you can't advocate for it. you know ignorance is really you know you can't do anything when you don't know so this, these are the reasons why we're trying to have these conversations I want to flip the on the, on the flip side of what you hope for the industry. And before I want to ask you your concerns about the industry moving forward, what I would feel my concern is, yes, we've had the time to have this conversation now, but when we come back to putting shows on, people are going to be at tighter budgets and more ruthless. And even though we've been advocating for this now, is there going to be the space and the time? And and I want to touch on the point that you said before, it's not necessarily a cost-impacting thing to be more accessible. And... So, would you have those same concerns, or am I being silly because yeah. I'm ignorant, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, there's, like, there's definitely physical, like, especially in New York theatre, you can say that, like, they have to address, like, access needs for people with mobility issues at the theatre and even just getting around the city. Like, that's something that that's, like, a bigger issue. But it is definitely there's so much more to this so i think that that's why like the main issues when someone asks for accessible accommodation or accommodations that it is not a cost it's not usually very much of a cost at all or anything so i think like my concerns for the future is that disabled people still continue to be tertiary objects in the space and that disability gets left out of the conversations even um in something that got a lot of likes and raised and got, um supported uh, the actors fund this this past week was the Ratatouille TikTok musical mm-hmm. and in their list of upholding voices they didn't they excluded disability from listing bringing out new voices and minority groups and so my fear is that after this great awakening after 2020 many of the able-bodied colleagues that I have We'll keep on addressing anti-racism without considering the other effects of that, which also includes anti-racism with ableism.
1: Yeah. And so um, what can we do? What can, what can theater art life do? And what can the people here listening to, I know we've talked about being an advocate or anything like that, but how do we stay on this, this topic? How do we continue to, to push this forward?
0: I think you need to care. You need to listen. You need to set up a safe space I think the access check-in is very helpful. And I think you uh, learn about disability yourself. There's several wonderful podcasts. There's a uh, Disability Visibility uh, podcast, which is by uh, Lisa Wong leads those, and they have all different areas of conversation around disability um, and intersectionality or related to disability and all areas of the creative um, development. There's one that I listened to recently, which was um, with uh, uh, gaming uh gamers. But there's so many different aspects. And I am, of course, just one voice as a stage man, uh, my own experience. And I think having more voices because it is so varied. Um, and there is so much grayness is that to keep having a conversation to search, search for those people and to follow them and like them. And there's a lot of great conversations to be had. And there's a lot of similar sentiments that people have had um, with different flavors. And I think that when we keep on holding this as a priority in our mind, that things will change.
1: Mm, Absolutely. You remind me when you say that we did a a podcast earlier in the year um, on Black Lives Matter and uh, one of our speakers had said empathy is a, a passing emotion but compassion is forever and and it really struck me and it still sits with me today in the fact that you know if you're compassionate if you're a compassionate person that tenacity to work on those things doesn't go away whereas empathy you can be you can see a disaster on, on the news and you can be empathetic to whatever that disaster is, but it's a passing thing, you know, but compassion is something that stays with you. And so I feel like that's, for me, that's what I want to move forward with, with Theatre Art right Life and also with talking with people like you to continue that conversation and continue to advocate for that on our website and get more accessible, closed captions, all the things um, so that, you know, uh, so thank you so much, Peter, for sharing your knowledge, your experience, your advice with us today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you.
2: We would love to hear from you, our listeners, on who you would like us to feature on this podcast or what topics fascinate you. There is a link in our podcast description where you can send us your requests and guest nominations. Theatre Art Life provides regular monthly webinars and podcast episodes for free. If you have the means, donations can be made via a link in the podcast notes. We would be thankful for any support you can give us. You can learn more about Theatre Art Live, the global media site for entertainment, at www.theatreartlife.com, And you can follow us on all social media platforms we want to thank David Sire for composing the music for our podcast and Michelle Sharota, who is our sound engineer. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the theater at life podcast.